Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. BetOnline is your number one source for all your basketball info, stats, news, and scores. Get the latest odds and lines, including the latest player reports for this year's pro basketball playoffs. BetOnline is always your sports information headquarters this season, as we have you covered for all your sports wagering needs. Basketball, Major League Baseball, NHL, hockey, right down to UFC and boxing. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to get your betting info, including live betting options and your favorite casino and card games you can play right from your home. So what's the call to action today? Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action. Be sure to use our promo code BELIEVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. All right, folks, well, welcome in. Uh, this is Jeremy Evans, your host of the California Sports Lawyer Podcast. We have a very special guest with us today, Greg Clifton, who is a partner with the Lewis Brisbois um, law firm based out of Phoenix, Arizona. He is the uh, chair of the Collegiate and Professional Sports Law Practice uh, and a member of the Entertainment Media and Sports Practice uh, at the law firm. He has extensive experience in the world of sports. Uh, particularly with um, the NCAA and with um, uh, one of the uh, conferences that he works with, uh, but uh, has a, a wonderful history uh, going all the way back to uh, sports attorney Bob Wolf, who was one of the original sort of sports attorneys uh, slash sort of agents uh, in the world. So, uh, so glad that Greg was able to join us. This is a part of the um, Cal State Long Beach a graduate sport management class. We had him come in as a guest. And so, so glad that he was able to join us and provide uh, his expertise. So uh, sit back and enjoy uh, this episode. And this was episode 18 of uh, season five. So again, uh, this is uh, Greg Clifton uh, interviewing with me uh, for this week's episode. Thanks so much. Greg, it's so good to see you, my friend. And thanks for taking the time. I know you've been traveling and doing a bunch of other stuff, but uh, it's good to see you. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit of uh, an introduction here. Um, and uh, so Greg Clifton is a partner at uh, Lewis Brisbane uh, Law Firm, uh, one of the sort of largest law firms uh, in the country. He's based out of Phoenix. He's one of the uh, most well-known sports attorneys uh, in the country. And uh, he heads up uh, their entertainment media and sports practice. Uh, just a terrific background. Uh, works a lot with the uh, uh, Sports Lawyers Association, and and again, I just sort of very blessed that uh, he's with us tonight. So, uh, Greg, other than that, um, I'm going to turn it over to you real quick. Talk a little bit more about your background, some of the stuff that sure. you've been working on, and and uh, just welcome you in. Thank you so much. I appreciate. It. Nice to meet all of you. You guys are real lucky to have a professor like Jeremy get a <laughs> chance to learn a lot from somebody who's really good at what he does. Um, 
So my background is, you know, a lot of people want to hear about this part of it is I, I was an agent for about 20 years and had some really uh, diverse uh, opportunities representing professional athletes in all sports and, you know, going back and also some media and entertainment. I worked with a gentleman by the name of Bob Wolf. So we represented new kids on the block, boys to men, uh, Mark Wahlberg, when he was known as Marky Mark, a uh, ton of TV and radio personalities and a lot of athletes, including Larry Bird. Uh, I represented Tommy Glavin, David Wells. I mean, we had a we had a really broad array, array in Doug Flutie. So I did that for a while. And then uh, he passed away, unfortunately, and I ran the business for his family. And then subsequent to that, when mom decided to sell, I worked with a couple other companies. So I was an agent for a little over 20 years. And about 10 years ago, uh, to be honest with you, I was getting sick of what I call, not a nice term, but the scum factor in the Asian business. And uh, I switched sides. And I had a chance to go back to the law firm that I started out with, a law firm called Jackson Lewis, to help them start a sports practice of all things, uh, which was on the management side, not on the player side anymore. So I worked for them for about 10 years. And a little over a year ago, I joined Lewis Brisbane and had a chance to help them do the same thing, but a little bit more diverse platform. Jackson Lewis was only labor and employment law, whereas Lewis Brisbane, we do a little bit about everything. We have about 44 areas of law we practice. In. So that's what I've been doing for the last year is trying to now start building our sports practice at Lewis Brisbane, which has been been a lot of fun. I mean, I was down in New York today. I, one of the conferences I represent is called the MAC Conference. Uh, and the bottom line is uh, they have 11 schools. So we were down there for our, twice a year. We have a two-day meeting. So I was down there. Um, and it was, you know, a lot of fun, got the train back and the train was delayed, unfortunately, which is why I'm late to participate with you guys. So I apologize. No, well, thanks, Greg. And you know, it's funny, the Bob Wolf thing. I always think back to like Jerry Maguire, the movie and, and, uh, some of the great, it was really about him, even though they called that guy, Mr. Fox, right. <laughs> really about him. That's what's so funny about that movie, but it was a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. So Greg, what do you, so I, I mean, I know you started out as an agent, but what sort of made you choose your career path or, or did, or you, did your career path choose you? Like, how did, well, how did that? It's funny. I, I had always aspired to work in sports and I'm old enough that when I wanted to get into sports, the only really way to get into sports was to be an agent. As you and I know now, Jeremy, there's so many, which is great about all your students. There's so many diverse ways that you can enter into the sports practice. You can combine it with a part of a legal practice or a business practice and have a small segment of it. I mean, there's people who do, Wills, trusts, and estates. There's people who do uh, tax law. Uh, there's all different aspects of it that they participate in as part of their overall practice. So that's kind of how I got into it back then. It was really only to be an agent because back then teams did not have three or four or five lawyers like they do now. Most colleges and universities did not even, some of them didn't even have a general counsel. So it was a really different world. And most of the general managers, unlike today, who are very sophisticated and well-trained, well, a little bit more of the old fashioned scouts with the cigar, you know, they were, they were, that was their background and that was their promotion was become a GM. So now we've seen this total metamorphosis in sports law, which is great for all of you because it's so many opportunities, the growth in sports, especially for, for females has been unbelievable um, in terms of opportunities, which is wonderful. I was just talking to someone the other day about all the associate general counsels on teams. Now, how so many of them are women. Uh, which is great. And they're incredibly qualified and, and really good lawyers. So uh, it's been a real big change from that perspective, how the, the profession has morphed itself, as I said, into a much different, more diverse area, uh, covering a lot more subjects. I mean, if you would have told me, and I'm sure Jeremy will agree with me 15 years ago, oh yeah, there's going to be a big thing called esports, 
we would have been like, what are you, what are you talking about? You know, and now, frankly, that was one of the things on our agenda today was talking about the conference's efforts to grow their esports area, uh, to attract more different student athletes, as we're calling them athletes, but more different students to these different schools. Um, and, and so it's, you know, it's almost comical to think that this has come from nowhere to where it is today. And there's other areas, you know, women's sports has grown tremendously. We just saw an NSA tournament where the, frankly, I think the women's tournament was more exciting than the men's tournament. Uh, and now fortunately for them, their, their media rights are up and they're going to be able to negotiate probably an incredible television media deal here over the next year or so. So a lot of changes in sports, um, which is one of the things I want to touch on a little bit is what we're seeing in the NCAA area with all of you probably watching sports, student athletes, there's right now there's three different paths right now that are going on to try and make student athletes into employees. We have NLRB, the general counsel of the NLRB who will be at the Sports Lawyers Association uh, next week speaking. Um, she is determined to have student athletes be covered by the National Labor Relations Act, which would give them the right and the ability to unionize if they want to do that. The information we're getting back is most students have no interest in unionizing anymore because with NIL rights, they don't think they have the need for it. So that's one column. The second column is a case that I know Jeremy and I have talked about is the Johnson case back in Pennsylvania, which is probably the most interesting slash threatening case to colleges and universities, which is that student athletes would be covered under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So they would get paid. They would have a chance for overtime. And how, what are their hours that are going to be compensated? Is it travel on trips, uh, on road trips? Is it practice time? What is it really going to be compensable time? So that's an area that I had been involved in several years ago that went all the way up to the, I believe it was the Seventh Circuit, if I'm going from memory, maybe it was the Fifth Circuit, where we defeated them, uh, the universities, a group of them did. And the same lawyer came back several years later now and has handpicked plaintiffs. And in the Third Circuit, Right now, they're waiting. To, they just had an oral argument a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now. Uh, but that's a pretty scary case, I think, from the collegiate perspective, whether or not the student athletes would be considered employees. And the third area, which is interesting for all of you people in California, was recently the, the, the gentleman who tried to unionize the Northwestern players several years ago was the head of the College Players Association. He has filed an EEOC charge alleging that the student athlete, African-American football players at UCLA have been victims of race discrimination. Um, and it's interesting as the EEOC, for all of you who don't know anything about it, it's the Equal Opportunity, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, excuse me, I sound like Biden there for a second. Um, but the bottom line is, um, typically the EEOC doesn't get involved unless the individual who's filing the charge is already an employee. So here, he's gonna try and use this process to have the EEOC declare these student athletes to be employees as a threshold. And then after he gets that, he's going to try and prove this, uh, this, this basically disparate impact, a discrimination charge, which will be a challenging one, will be going on for a while. So there's a lot of things going on in college sports right now. And we have a new uh, head of the NCAA, Charlie Baker, former governor of Massachusetts, who is a real politician. So he's a lot different than his predecessor. Uh, he is determined, as he says, and I, and I happen to know Charlie very well because he was a fifth-year senior when I was a freshman. So I, I know him pretty well from playing basketball a little bit with him. And he's determined to try and modify the NCAA to try and have what his goal is, is to get federal legislation for NIL rights. And right now, any of you who follow this at all, we, we're in a little bit of a the wild, wild west ex example. That expression has been used so many times. But 
the bottom line is we have so many student athletes who are operating under different state laws. The NCAA has been almost powerless, obviously, what's going on here. So we have this really, it's it's morphing in, in multiple different directions. I keep using that term, but the bottom line, that's the truth. And we have student athletes, some of whom are now being recruited and utilizing the NIL opportunities to get them, quote unquote, in place with new schools. The transfer portal has been really just burdened with these opportunities for student athletes. As I've heard from a number of schools, first question they ask is not about the coach, not about where I'll play. What are you getting me? What am I getting if I come over here? So it's really become almost like a quasi-professional uh, league nowadays, which is, I guess, people don't mind. But I think for a lot of the the older people, it's amateur status is something that was revered a little bit, perhaps too much. So we have all this going on at the same time. And then one of the wild card that's getting in the middle of this is the, the term, I don't know if you've heard all of it, is, is called collectives. So now we have groups of alums who are forming these collectives. And I was just on the phone with somebody yesterday about this, and the school wants to create a collective. And the issue is whether or not they should try to create it as a 501c3, as a charitable organization, or a straight LLC. And our tax people in my firm, uh, we've helped set up a bunch of these, are very, very concerned that if you try and set up as a 501c3, if the older alums were donating to this and they're taking a charitable deduction, it's probably not going to pass the smell test a year or two down the road if the, if the IRS really looks closely at this. And those people are not only going to lose the deduction, they're going to have to pay interest and penalties. And it's going to go back into their income. So we've been trying to convince as many of these collectives who approach us to set it up as a 501c3, and not to set it up as a 501c3, excuse me, to do it as a straight LLC. So that's another issue that's going on right now. So we have all this stuff going on in college sports and the old days of just rolling the balls out and watching people play, whether it's basketball or hockey or, or baseball or football, whatever it might be, is, is really different. Um, yeah. And seeing the NC becoming a little bit more aggressive too with their enforcement um, because they know this NIL thing is a, is a nightmare for them. So they're, the big thing they're doing right now, we have a number of schools we're working with, they're coming after these schools because of the COVID shutdown, a lot of schools still had unofficial visits, but they treated them as official visits. So I don't know if you've any of you have followed, you've seen Tennessee just had a huge case last week. Um, ASU is going to have a big, serious problem they have, they're going to be dealing with. Uh, Michigan's under the gun a little bit. I don't know if you heard about that with Coach Harbaugh has been uh, accused of uh, violating this COVID shutdown rule. So we've got a lot of these things all flying around in sports right now, which is just on the collegiate level, which is really, really interesting and to a certain degree disheartening, but I think we'll push through it. The next uh, couple of years are going to be very unsettled though. Yeah. No, Greg, and I appreciate that. And I guess drilling down that a little bit, I want to talk about a couple of issues. One is sort of title nine in this context, but then also like the whole employee independent contractor debate, right? Because I think in the NCAA, there's been this issue of, well, are these athletes employees? Are they independent contractors? Should we make them employees? There's even been talk about uh, some legislators and legislation as to uh, should we give 50% of the revenues to student athletes? That's the other push that's coming up right now. Some of the state laws yeah. are actually in the media. And it's so fresh in my mind because we just were discussing this today. And that's the conference that represents a mid-major. And they're saying some of these state laws are saying, yeah, we're going to give them revenue sharing and they're going to take the gross revenue from sports and deduct certain expenses like the cost of the scholarship out and whatever remains, they're going to split 50-50 with the athletes. And the, there was a bunch of like 
really kind of weird grins on the faces of some of these presidents. And they said, well, that's good. Does that mean they're, they're going to pay 50% of our losses that we have to pay to carry some of these sports? And that's the challenge is that everyone is under this misconception, I think, based upon the SEC and the ACC and perhaps the Pac-12 and the Big 12, that everyone's rolling in money. And frankly, most of the conferences around the country, I'll call them the mid-majors or the smaller conferences, really, really are not making money. They're really taking money from the schools that are giving them subsidies to run their athletic programs. And that's what's really an interesting challenge is the NCAA in the last week now has just announced the board of directors passed some more, as I'll say, cost factors that are going to be passed along to all the Division I schools, which is going to include a 10-year post-eligibility scholarship to finish your degrees, more medical uh, issues. A lot of this stuff has been finalized yet, but they announced it. And every one of them is just an additional cost. So now we have full cost of attendance. We have the Austin money, potentially, that most schools are paying. And now we're going to have increased costs as well. And for some of these schools with a value of a scholarship, it might be seventy-five dollars or $80,000 nowadays. We're looking at $100,000 to $110,000 per student athlete is going to be the cost for a university. So a lot of schools are afraid. They're not going to be able to afford it. So the discussion comes up, what do you do? And obviously, one of the options is to cancel the sport. The other option is, frankly, to make them club sports. Uh, and that's the second choice. So uh, a lot of this stuff is going to play out here. And a lot of it's not pretty because a lot of schools are saying, we're not going to do it. We don't have that kind of money to contribute to all of our athletes and not make money and just continue to lose money. And merely the loss is going to become larger. So we shall see the, the NCAA issue with this one I'm just discussing is going to be effective. Uh, for my memory, I think it's August 1st of 24. So it's a good 15, 16 month window here before it becomes effective. But it was passed, the board of directors, it's in play now. So, and you got that going on and, and then I'll, I'll shut up for a minute. But the other thing, which is interesting, and again, most of the stuff with California, there's a lawsuit pending right now on the NIL stuff. And uh, there was just an opportunity they're trying to have them, the plaintiffs become a class. So it'd be a much easier lawsuit for the plaintiffs to, to argue. And the NCAA just filed and is arguing that that's not appropriate to have a class action here. So that's another issue. And that's one of those they're trying to get back NIL money. They're claiming that they should have been entitled to get this money before the NIL rights were passed. So, you know, it's uh, it's tough. I mean, there's no easy solution. There's no easy answer, unfortunately. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that, Greg. And I wonder, too, if you mind, if you wouldn't mind maybe given you're so knowledgeable in these issues, maybe given a little bit of background in what Title IX is and what its purpose is. And, sure. then I want, and then I want to move into some of your arbitration work. Sure. The Title IX thing, I'll just touch on it briefly. When I was younger, and I'm older than Jeremy, so I always viewed it as the, the law that had allowed my sister to play sports. Because uh, basically up until then, there were, for the most part, were no women's sports. And that's the basis of it. It's, I think it's just its 50th anniversary was last year. But the reality is it allowed and created an equal playing field where female athletes some of whom we are, are really amazed by today, but 50 years ago is a little bit more cryptic in their skill set. They weren't quite as good, but they got the opportunity to play. And that was the primary focus of Title IX was under the federal law, basically anyone who had received any type of federal assistance, federal dollars, they were now forced to create this equal playing field. And we've seen what's happened initially that was beneficial to female athletes. 
And then for several years, unfortunately, it became more of a sexual harassment, sexual assault area where a lot of people are using Title IX um, to try and essentially prosecute either criminally or civilly for violations of Title IX. That has essentially calmed down a little bit. And now we're seeing more of, we have a number of schools we're helping with, is this essentially a gender equity audit. So in addition to, as I said, 50 years ago, where they created this to allow people the opportunity to have an equal footing to play basketball, softball, whatever it might've been from a female perspective. Now what we're seeing is, hold on a second here. What, what, what are we gonna do here? How are we gonna make this? So what happens is under this equity analysis, there has to be essentially the same opportunities for men and women, but financially as well, right? Locker rooms, how they travel, same types of hotels, I mean, like it goes a whole myriad of issues, but a lot of schools are not in compliance with that. So there's a lot of efforts that are being made. Um, we're doing a lot of what we call internal audits to try and analyze and make sure these schools are in what I would call technical compliance. And if they're not by upping wherever they need to up it, which might be more women's sports, it might be more opportunities for men, women, it might be more financial spending for the women's sports. That's kind of a quick synopsis of the, the Title IX space. And it's a it's a very fascinating area. It's another area I don't think is going to be a less important or less valuable from a university perspective. So for any of you who might be interested, it's a great area. It's not as complicated as it appears. Um, it's really taken some time to read and certain, reading some of these cases. There's always, as Jeremy will tell you, there's always different Title IX cases that are cropping up around the country. We see them more and more. Um, yeah. I know Jeremy wanted me to touch about on arbitration. So I'm also a labor lawyer by trade, which is really where I spent most of my time in addition to sports. Um, so that involves obviously unions and collective bargaining negotiations and arbitrations in that setting, uh, which are typically, you know, as long as you want to make them and you can have a two-day arbitration, whatever, you can have 20 witnesses, whatever you want. But I just wanted to explain that because the area that I love to practice in is baseball salary arbitration, which is a completely, completely different world. And I don't know how many of you are baseball fans who ever watch it or look into it and see how that works, but it's a really fascinating area, which is developed. Uh, when I first started doing it, I was obviously on the player's side. And back then we used to write a written brief and you'd submit the brief and sometimes read the brief into the record. Uh, and what's unique about salary arbitration is you literally have one hour to present your case. And now if you think about that, you're synthesizing in some cases, a minimum of typically three years of experience, sometimes as much as six years because that's the window of arbitration eligibility for players and getting all the statistical information and with all the modern stats and everything that's gone on to try and prove your goal of whatever it is. So a player submits a number. So let's just say an example, a player submits $3 million and a team says, no, we only think you're worth $2 million. So what happens is there's a panel of three arbitrators and they're very experienced arbitrators. They're not people who just started practicing labor law. And their only question is, is the player worth 2,500,000 and in theory a penny or more, or is he worth 2,499,999 or less? If it's 2,5 or above, he wins. If it's 2,499 or below, he loses. So what's happened over the last several years is um, a lot of the, the team side has become a little more sophisticated. And I don't want to just say that because I'm involved in it, but there's a lot more effort and commitment, whether it be staffing of the teams or outside counsel like myself, we really get in there and we really analyze this stuff. And the agents, not to make fun of them, because I used to be one and the Players Association are not quite as sophisticated at this point, I don't think, in their approach. 
I think we're going to see a change in that probably by next year because more management cases were won this year than player cases. Um, but it's a really interesting because there's really most times you don't present witnesses. You usually create somewhere between 100 to 110 slides, which is what I typically do. And, you know, it's a fine line, which is interesting. Is the player, if you go to the hearing, the player must be in the room. The player has to sit in the hearing, has to listen to the hearing. And, you know, I was fortunate this year I had two cases of Tampa Bay's four cases, and I was fortunate enough, a little lucky, I would say, to win both of them. But the, the bottom line is both of the cases were interesting. In one case in particular, the player was very, very unhappy. He blamed it on the arbitrators. He claimed the arbitrators weren't knowledgeable. And the Cy Young Award winner from last year, which a case I was not involved in, which was the Brewers pitcher, he was very vehement in his reaction. He really kind of attacked the team after the hearing. And from an agent's perspective, as I used to be one, I used to tell players, if you're going to go in the room, they're going to go in to win. We're going, going to win to win. You can't be sensitive. They are going to find every negative in your performance. They're not going to say that was a great outing you had. They're going to find the few outings where you weren't successful, or they're going to point out the times you struck out with the bases lowered, not the times where you hit the double with the man on first to, first to drive the run in. That's just the nature of the process. Now, what's traditionally happened, I always remember several years ago, there was one year, there wasn't one case that went to a hearing. Every case settled. And you got to keep in mind this arbitration, right? And I know when I tuned in, you guys were talking a little bit about collective bargaining. Where this came from, this was a collectively bargained right, which has remained all these years later between the Major League Baseball owners and the Players Association. So this one particular year, there were no cases. So I was at, speaking at a, I don't remember what the forum was, I was speaking somewhere and someone raised their hand for a question and said, gee, didn't arbitration really fail this year because there were no cases? And I gave the answer, which I think surprised a lot of people. I said, no, it was perfect because that's exactly what the goal is. The goal is to utilize the arbitration process to encourage negotiation, to try and reach a negotiated agreement, not to have outside three arbitrators make the decision. But what's happened is what a number of teams have done, Tampa Bay being one of them, is what we call it's file and trial. So they'll have negotiations, they'll go back and forth and try and reach a negotiated agreement. But what happens is there's a period of time and then there's a date set where the parties have to file their numbers. So what a lot of teams have said is, you know what, if we end up filing numbers, we're done. We're not going to negotiate. We're going to see you in the hearing room and then we'll let the arbitrators decide. Years ago, that was never the process. We would sometimes negotiate. I can remember literally going into the hearing room, uh, getting ready to negotiate and the case would be resolved. Still happens once in a while. We had that this year with the Yankees, with the Aaron Judge case. Uh, literally, we're about to start the hearing when Aaron and his agent said, hey, can we talk for a few minutes? And you know, ultimately, we're able to resolve that case, which was probably good for the Yankees and good for Aaron as well at the time. But certain teams like Tampa Bay, that doesn't happen. Once you file the numbers, it's we're going to the war, so to speak. And I hate to use an analogy to war, but I'll call it salary arbitration war. Let's clarify that. Um, but it is an amazing process. And then literally you typically get a decision within 24 hours. This year for my two cases with Tampa Bay, there was another relief pitcher, which was a week later that was similar to the two cases I had. So they held all three cases in abeyance for about 10 days. And then we got all three cases decided the same day we heard. So very interesting process. One that I think a lot of people would like to do away with. Um, but it's not going to go away. I think it's going to remain. And if it didn't go away in the last collective bargaining agreement, I don't think it'll go away. So 
we have it and we use it and teams use it and, and agents use it, frankly, as well. Yeah. You know, and Greg, to your point, I mean, I think one thing to highlight, too, is that there's maybe a handful of folks in the country who actually do arbitrations. And the fact that Greg has had his hands on a few of those is is, is rare in itself uh, because it's such a limited group. And the other part of this, too, is that it's um, uh, arbitrations are very rare because most of the time, as Greg mentioned, these, you know, they're going to settle beforehand. They're going to set a number and they're going to settle beforehand because the last thing a team wants or a player wants is to sit into a room, as Greg mentioned, and have the employee, so to speak, sitting there basically listening why the team doesn't like him, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, it's, it's incredible that someone like this year, and I'll just say, you know, I had a, one player who had been injured a lot in his career, and it wasn't a Tommy John or a Jordan Lee Lee or something. He literally had hip issues, calf issues, oblique issues. So I'm laughing because we settled the case. We didn't end up using it. But what I did was I took a picture of his body in like in a, in a batting pose, and I highlighted in red every area during his career where he had been injured because he had missed more than a year on the disabled list or the injured list, as it's now called. So literally the team paid him for more than a year and got no productivity out of him. And again, these injuries were not Tommy John happens, the knee injury can happen, but these were, I would say, you know, uh, not that they weren't injuries, but they weren't the classic, you can lose a year injury. This was 30 days, 40 days, 60 days, and literally he had missed almost a year. And I joke, I always say it's my, my most impressive slide I ever did, which unfortunately we didn't get a chance to use. Uh, but that's what goes on. I mean, that's what you're trying to go into that room. And you still want to take the, the, the you don't want to attack on a personal level. And you sort of preface your comments by saying this is not intended as such. When you start your presentation, we are going to present information and statistical analysis to show that our number is right. Not to ever say, we're going to put you down personally on our, or on a professional level. We just try and distinguish between the two. So it's a fine line. And, you know, sometimes teams get a little more aggressive, which I guess happened with the Brewers this year uh, with their Cy Young award winner, who again was not happy with the process, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Now, and, and, you know, Greg, I wonder if we could switch gears a little bit. I appreciate sharing that and talk a little bit about the national labor relations board and, and what, what, what their job is and, and what sort of work sure. those guys. Yeah. That's a, that's a great, it's a very interesting, I'm glad you mentioned that, Jeremy, because right now it's incredibly interesting, especially as I mentioned earlier with the college sports area. The, the, it's a governmental agency, which is supposed to be apolitical, but it is very political. And what happens is it's, it goes back and forth on the five members of the board, typically by the presidential appointment. So when a Republican's in power, it's more conservative or more pro-employer in their jurisdictions and their decisions. And when a Democrat's in power, it's more pro-employee. So usually it takes a couple of years for cases. The way the NLRB works is there is a charge that's filed. And I hate to say this, but anyone can file a charge at any time about anything when it comes to the NLRB. It doesn't have to be personal to you. We saw a few years ago, someone filed, I don't remember the basis of it, filed a charge against the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, for some reason, it had nothing to do. There was no synergy or no uh, privity of contract between the personal file. And so we see it sometimes these filings that, that, that happen in which you just shake your head. But what happens is the NLRB is interesting because they go multiple functions. They have an investigative function. So if someone files a charge, I would say they spin their head around. So they put on, I'm an investigator hat on first, and they will investigate the allegations 
to see whether or not there is an alleged a basis for an alleged violation of the National Labor Relations Act itself. If they believe there's a basis for that allegation, then they switch to a prosecutorial role. They will file a charge. I'm sorry, they will take the charge rather, because anyone can file a charge, excuse me. They'll take that charge and they'll make it into a complaint. And then it's like you guys have probably heard before any type is a civil case. If any of you have ever been involved in a lawsuit, there's a complaint. And then you answer the complaint with denials or whatever. And then sometimes you might, in fact, assert affirmative defenses or whatever they are. And that case literally goes in front of an administrative law judge and you have a hearing where you call witnesses, there's evidentiary rulings, et cetera. It's like a, a mini trial, but it's not like in a courtroom. It, does, it lacks the sophistication of a courtroom, but this, the, the, the seriousness of it is similar. There's just no jury. It's just a judge. You present the evidence. You make evidentiary rulings, like I said. And at the end of the case, you will submit a written brief. So it's not quick justice. It usually takes anywhere from, I would say, six, seven, eight, nine months, which is why the case that we're dealing with with regard to collegiate sports, the unfair labor practice charge that was filed there, the hearing is going to be scheduled shortly, but then we're still going to be looking at probably another year between appeals and whatnot. So what happens is administrative law judge will make that decision. I use the word appeal. Then whichever side is not happy can file an appeal, and that would go to that full labor board I was describing in Washington. So depending upon who's in power, the three to two could go either way. So right now it's a very favorable board, as I would say, if there's going to be a case that's going to come up where these student athletes or employees, probably a pretty good chance this is the right time to bring that case because I think ultimately they will rule and they will make a decision that's going to find these student athletes to be employees. Um, it'll be heavily litigated. There'll be a lot of evidentiary um, proofs that'll be submitted by both sides. But I just think right now the general counsel, again, who's going to be speaking next week in L.A. Uh, at the Sports Lawyers Association meeting is so intent and so focused on having these student athletes become uh, employees under the National Labor Relations Act. And that's the important distinction that I started with is the three few different areas. So if they become employees under the National Labor Relations Act. That doesn't mean they get still good. They don't get paid. They have the right, because that's the FLSA case I was describing. They have the right to use the National Labor Relations Act so they could unionize. They can file unfair labor practice charges. They have the protection that any other employee has in this country if they are declared and found to be employees. So that's really what she's pushing for. What's interesting is she, meaning the general counsel, has been pushing for this, but not one student athlete has stepped forward despite her efforts to file an unfair labor practice charge to start this process. There were two charges that were filed, one in Minneapolis, one in California. They picked the charge in California to move forward on, and that's the one that there's going to be the quote-unquote administrative trial on, but not a student athlete. No student athlete stepped forward and said, hey, I should be an employee. The law is violating my rights. So it's just something to keep in mind. And I know Charlie Baker, the new head of the NCAA, believes that most student athletes do not want to be employees. They're very happy with NIL rights, which we haven't really talked about, but they're happy that they don't want to pay for a union. They don't want to pay union dues. They don't want to be subject to a union bylaws and a union constitution and all the things that union bring with them. So it's going to be interesting. Even if they get that right, will they go and potentially try and unionize, which they now would have the legal authority to do, which back in the Northeastern case, you know, several years ago, that case never, they, they voted. The regional director there out of Chicago allowed them to vote. But ultimately, the labor board itself in Washington 
embargoed those votes and they never counted it. But what they did there, as I would say, it's a silly analogy, but I would say the NLRB punted on it because they didn't allow it to happen. They said the fact that you have so many state schools in the conference that Northwestern was in, Northwestern being a private school, but the public schools there, they said it would be an uneven playing, uneven playing field because most of those schools that are public are governed by state labor laws, not by the federal labor law. So that's why they avoided the whole issue and they never rendered a decision. So this this idea of student athletes and NLRB rights has been floating around for about a decade. So yeah. we're finally going to get a decision on it here in the next, I'd say, six to nine months. Well, a fascinating issue. And I think it completely changes the industry if, uh, if it goes the way of making them employees. And sure probably, does. And you're probably going to have folks that are not going to be too happy about it on, on really both sides. Um, so That's I, very true. Yeah. And I wonder, Greg, too, when you're talking about like uh, labor unions, maybe give us a little bit of background on labor unions, what their importance is, what way and, 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 and really what what roles that they serve. Sure. You know, years ago, most of the stuff in our country, I call it prehistoric days, most employees did not have any federal laws to protect them. Right. We didn't have OSHA. There was no EEOC. There was none of these federal laws that were in place really to protect the employees. You know, you think of the, the coal miners and all the people who got black lung and all those things. There's nothing, no agency of the federal government that could step in and protect these employees. So really unions played that role. And unions had a very important function on behalf of the employees where they would represent them, not only in collective bargaining, but step forward in some of these protective areas to make sure their employees were safe and demand from the employers some of these mechanisms to protect them. But what happened is over time, we've seen more and more federal laws come into play, right? We have the Department of Labor who oversees making sure people get paid overtime. The EEOC, as I said, the NLRB, you know, I could keep going down the long list of, of laws and federal interventions that are there. So I don't want to say this to be mean, but what happened was the relevance, I'll use that terminology, of labor unions diminished. So suddenly people and employers were getting much more aggressive in their defense against labor unions, what we call this election period, where the union, or rather employees have a chance to vote on whether or not they want a union or not. Now, we still have a lot of unions. We still have the Teamsters, the food commercial workers and others around the country. And I, I deal with them on a regular basis. And some of them are very, very good, just like some employers are very, very good. Some employers are not. Some unions aren't. But the basis of it, the history of it was really created out of necessity. Unions grew out of necessity. And what happened is their their importance and I don't like to say it because people have a union, it's still important to them, but their overall growth perspective, they've diminished over time because most people think that their theory is I don't need to pay for a union because I can go down to the labor board and they'll take my charge. I don't have to hire a lawyer. They'll prosecute everything for me. And all I have to do is show up. I can go to the Department of Labor and they'll have a representative there who will take my claim that I'm not being paid properly. I'm not being paid in overtime as I should be. They don't have to pay for that because the federal government has these agencies that now provide those services. So that's the real issue with, with unions. Now, some unions like the Teamsters who I deal with all the time, it's a little bit more of a national focus, uh, unlike some of the more local unions, uh, which might only have five or 10, 15, 20 employees who are members of the union. I'm doing a lot of work in the cannabis industry now where we're seeing a lot more of the cannabis companies being unionized. There's been a big push there. So it's, uh, it's you know, they're not going to go away. And it's just they're, they're morphing a little bit. I keep using that term, but they keep, you know, things change. 
they're becoming a little bit different. They're becoming a little bit more focused on, it's not just we're going to get you another dollar and your wages. It's more about these other work issues that are very important to some of the employees who want a union. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe three more questions for you, Greg, and I know it's late for you, is uh, maybe discuss a little bit the differences between NCAA and NAIA and sort of what what's going on there. Well, you know, the NAIA, NAIA has been around for a long time. Uh, a lot of good smaller schools uh, that don't have the size, perhaps, that the NCAA does, uh, but they still provide a very valuable function for a number of collegiate athletes. Uh, and they have rules, they have championships, they have the same thing as the NCAA does. But I hate to say it, most people on this call right now on the Zoom thing here probably could name three or four NAIA schools. It's just they don't get the same attention. But for a number of student athletes, it's a tremendous alternative because they might not want to play big time sports. They might not want to play in the Big Ten or might not be good enough, but they do want to play college sports. And perhaps they don't want to play Division Two or Division Three. The NIAA provides a great alternative for them to be able to continue their collegiate career. And in some of those athletes still go on, they play, play, play professionally, not as often, but, you know, the competition is just a little bit smaller environment. Uh, not quite as, again, they don't have the TV coverage and the media coverage that the NCAA does, but they are a viable alternative for a number of athletes. Okay. Now that's helpful. And then I guess two, two last questions for you, Greg, and I can we appreciate your time is talk a little bit about collective bargaining. And, and how that plays out in the, the sort of professional sports setting. Well, what's happened in professional sports, you know, we, we've seen a little bit in soccer where they just entered, I think, into a new collective bargaining agreement in one of the leagues. But for the most part, the collective bargaining relationships in the four major sports are established, right? Football, baseball, basketball, hockey is an ongoing relationship between the parties. Um, for the most part, I would say that the players have historically created a lot more leverage that they have when they go to the table than the owners do. Now we've seen over several times over the last number of years in collective bargaining where the unions have utilized certain leverage that they have, but so, excuse me, but so have the owners with some of the owners there, unions will decertify in an effort to file antitrust suits. So it's become less about bargaining and more about legal posturing. But I think the bottom line is, and I've said this for a long time, when it comes to collective bargaining in professional sports, the athletes don't wanna be owners, and the owners might want to be athletes, but they don't have the skill to be the athletes. So what's happened is both sides, and that's why we've seen this revenue sharing concept with some places are trying to apply to college sports, where they both parties have a stake in the game to grow it. Because if we're sharing revenues and the salary cap, whether it's a hard cap or a soft cap, um, is derived from the revenues, players want to grow the game. Owners want to grow the game because they're going to get bigger piece of that 50%. And obviously the one thing that we've seen over the last couple of years is astronomical growth in and franchise value. I think if Jeremy and I, when we first started being sports lawyers, someone would have told us that a team would sell for $6 billion. I would have said, there's absolutely no way, no franchise that would be worth that. But we've seen this year that franchise, the Phoenix Suns just sold for four point something billion dollars. I mean, the, the money is an incredibly, incredibly high for the valuations of these franchises. And it's it's kind of like a private club, right? There's only 32 teams in the NFL. And if you want to own one of them for the ego of it or the thrill of it, whatever it might be, that's the price of admission. So it's really, really interesting. So the collective bargaining pieces, we haven't seen work stoppages. You know, we, we saw a threatened one last year in baseball for a short period of time, but we haven't seen the, the acrimony 
that we've seen historically in some of these when football first started unionizing. I can remember, you know, the guys walking picket lines and things like that. We haven't seen that. Uh, you know, we just saw the NBA enter into an agreement. And most of these collective bargaining agreements in professional sports now are a lot longer. You know, and sometimes in the in the industry world that I work in, we see a three-year deal, four-year deal, maybe. Sports now we're seeing six-year, seven-year, eight-year deals of labor peace. And that's really what they're trying to do is they're just trying to have labor peace. And again, most of those contracts that are collectively bargained usually surpass the length of most athletes' careers. And that's another issue is that, you know, guys come play two, three, four years. Now, the one thing we did see this year, which was interesting, is the minor league baseball players have unionized, um, which is, you know, some people think it's good. Some people think it doesn't matter. Some people think it's bad. But it's been a long time coming. And it's the first time where the Major League Baseball Players Association said, hey, you know, we'll welcome those guys into our union. We're going to create a separate little subdivision. So they just completed their negotiations for a, a collective bargain agreement, which Again, from what I understand, I haven't seen the actual agreement yet, but minor league salaries are up. Players in the minor leagues are going to be making more money, uh, which is great. I mean, you know, those guys have been playing at very low wages, so now they're going to be a little bit more of a living wage. So that's the most recent uh, collective bargaining agreement and the most recent unionization in professional sports is the minor league players. Yeah. No, and I appreciate that, Greg, and I, it's so insightful, and I would close with maybe just a – I initially said one question, but I can't resist, so I'm going to ask two. Um, the first is, what does the future of the business look like? And then the second is, and the last one, which would be sort of words of wisdom for folks in terms of uh, people looking to break into the industry. Sure. I mean, where we see this going, I, I don't think sports is going to slow down. Um, if, Like I said, if you would have told me a franchise would be worth $6 billion, I'd say, i jokingly say, what, you smoke and crack? Because there's no way, right? But it's happened, and we're seeing this continued growth, continued popularity. You know, you just watched the NFL draft. My gosh, for three days, people were glued to their TVs watching most players that don't even know who they are, except they might know the school they played for, being picked by their teams. We've seen an incredibly exciting NHL playoffs right now as they're getting finished with the first round of the playoffs. Uh, the NBA is kicking in now. You know, you're having Steph Curry and LeBron, and LeBron facing off, so you have a lot of interesting matchups. And baseball, frankly, when you can see the Pittsburgh Pirates in first place, it's good for the game. Uh, you know, we're seeing perhaps the Yankees in last place in the American League East. That won't last for long. But so I think we're seeing a lot of growth in the traditional sports. But I also think we're going to see a lot of growth in the non-traditional sports. As I mentioned earlier, the esports, And, you know, if someone had told me people are going to pay and go to sit in an arena and watch people play video games, I would have probably reacted the same way as I would to a $6 billion franchise. But it's there. And you know, now we have the pickleball, you know, that's another area which is going to lead to more participation of people in sports. So I don't see sports slowing down. And for everyone who's on the call, who's taking your class, I think the opportunities are limitless. I think, you know, what I would try and encourage people is to find out what you're interested in, what your love is, and then really learn about it. Uh, because again, you don't have to do it full time. You can part of, have it part of your career or part of your job function, whatever it might be. You can supplement it with the area of that you love, you want to be participating in. Um, but there's still going to be a lot of opportunity, a lot of growth. And that's why I would just encourage people. The other thing I would tell everybody, it's not going to happen in a day. You know, I, I always aspired, like I said, to get into sports. It literally took me to become a labor lawyer, work for a law firm. And then someone introduced me to somebody who introduced me to somebody else when I got my first opportunity. And then I was lucky because the one thing I would say, you could be the greatest agent in the world, but if you're representing someone who gets hurt, or gets old and can't play anymore, 
doesn't matter how great an agent you are. So you have to be a little bit lucky to have good players who stay healthy and produce in their athletic field of, of choice. That's the only way an agent can have an opportunity to really shine. So it's a, it's a challenging business. The agent pins, I can tell you, you have to be ready for it. It's 24 seven. I do mean it because to get married, your wife or your, if you're a woman, your husband has to understand you're going to get phone calls at 11 o'clock. You're going to be working Saturdays and Sundays. You'll be getting a phone call and say, honey, I got to get on a plane tomorrow morning. I got to fly to Seattle, whatever it might be, because you are in a reactionary business. Uh, because if you don't react, that athlete will find somebody else who will, who will react and service them. So that's the biggest challenge. If you want to be an agent, it's different world. It's a lot. It's a great world. I loved it. It's a lot of fun, but I don't miss some of the stuff. I miss doing the deals. So I'm able to still do that on the other side a little bit, but I would encourage all of you to figure out what you really are interested in, what you love and pursue it. And uh, it might take some time, but don't give up. Keep pushing. Yeah. Greg, you're awesome. Always good to hear your voice, my friend. I'll look forward to seeing you in LA next week. And See you next uh, week. Thanks for taking the time. All right, folks. Well, thanks again for listening in. Again, that was Greg Clifton with the Lewis Brisbois uh, Law Firm based out of Phoenix, Arizona. Very well-known, reputable uh, sports attorney in the United States, uh, working in labor and employment with NCAA and other professional sports teams. Um, clearly a, a knowledgeable person and a dear friend and glad he was able to join us. Uh, this show has been brought to you by Bet Online. Uh, again, always uh, thank you for making us number one sports law podcast in the world. And we'll look forward to being back with you very soon. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.